What a wild and wacky and intense political season we're in, is it not? Understatement? I mean, I haven't been around that long, but I've been around long enough to know uh, and walk through a few presidential elections over the years. But this one is different, supercharged, right? The, the divide is great. The issues are so crucial uh, globally and, of course, nationally. And, of course, we have candidates on both sides. We have the Democrats, we have the Republicans, and uh, big personalities, and a lot of solutions are coming out. Oh, with these issues, here's the solution. This is what we're going to do. A lot of opinions. When we look at this particular situation, I think uh, this is what we should do. Or if we look at this particular person, uh, this is how I feel about them. A lot of opinions being thrown out there. A lot of promises being made. It's interesting, though, as we watch these things unfold on Fox or CNN, whichever it is, one week, candidate A says this, and then the next week, candidate A says another thing. And this is across the spectrum, isn't it? Like comedians and news reporters alike are showing one week a promise is made or an opinion is shared, and the next week it seems as if the promise has changed. Right? A, an intense political season, but for sure a confusing one. Uh, leaves many of us in America as we watch this kind of scratching our heads. Right? It's been wild, not just because of the candidates and the issues, but because of the up and down nature of what's being told to us. One of the things that I've noticed, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, it doesn't really matter, that's been uh, across the board, is that people are skeptical. It's not just a political season, but really this political season has really revealed and I think reinforced the fact that we live in a skeptical society. Right? People, as they hear these promises and he see these changing opinions week in and week out, you just said this and now you're saying that, people are scratching their heads and they're really skeptical. They don't really know who to trust. I've heard so many people say, I don't really feel like I can vote this year. I don't know what to do about this person or that person. Just not sure. A lot of skepticism out there. And in many ways, people across the country are saying, in what can I believe? In whom can I really trust? I think this was illustrated powerfully recently when I had a conversation with someone close to me that would call themselves an agnostic. That is, I, I don't think we can know, really, about the bigger issues in life. Don't know. I think about these big issues, global, and the ultimate questions in life, and to be honest, I just don't know. Here's what I know. My family, my work, my neighbors, my house. Right? That people don't know about the larger questions in life, some of the 
ultimate questions are being unanswered. In many ways, they're even giving up on the pursuit of answering them, and they're basically just looking at the simple aspects of life, all that they can handle, and say, look, I don't know what to believe or to trust in about all those things, but I do know what I see in front of me every single day. We're a skeptical society. We're questioning in new and profound ways, and we're really looking at only the things that we see in front of us. And those are the things that we trust and know for sure. Those are the things that we continue to deeply value. And everything else is, is really a big question mark. So what can we believe? Really. In whom can we truly trust? Very important questions, especially when we look at today. I mean, here we are, uh, uh, 70, 80, 100 people, I don't know how many are here, gathered together to sing and pray and preach and hear and respond to this radical claim. Jesus is alive. Can we believe that? Really? Can we trust in him, really. As we turn in the story, following along in John chapter 20, we see that we are not the only people struggling with belief. We are not the only people wrestling with skepticism. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 24 through 29. Would love to have each and every one of you follow along with us as we read this passage, a continuation of what we've already read this morning. Listen to what John records in the 20th chapter of his gospel, 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. And put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Mary went to the tomb. 
And when she got there, she saw the stone rolled away. And upon seeing the stone rolled away, she ran. And she went and told Peter and John. And Peter and John, of course, uh, hearing this, want to see it for themselves. And so what do they do? They run to the tomb. One, who happened to mention, was faster than the other, just saying. And he made it there first, but he looked inside, but was hesitant to go in. And he looked inside, he saw the linen cloths in there. But Peter, not being as hesitant nor shy, ran in. And what he found were the linen cloths there, lying. And then the face cloths, not with the linen cloths around his body, were folded and laid nicely there. Peter saw this with his own eyes, and then John came in, and he equally saw it. Meanwhile, on the outside, Mary is weeping. She's crying because she thinks that someone has taken the body of her Lord, and upon weeping, she looks and sees two angels. And then she hears a voice. Why are you weeping? And she turns and she sees Jesus. But she doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. And so she says, they've taken the body of my Lord. And if you know where he is, let me know. And then Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He speaks in that personal way. He says her name in a way that only Jesus can say it. And she recognizes that it's Jesus and she calls him what he is, Rabboni, teacher. She sees Jesus alive with her own eyes. And she ran and she went back and she told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Yes, the Lord who was dead, who we just saw die a horrific death. I have seen alive with my own eyes. And then that same day, in the evening, Jesus comes and he appears to the disciples. And the, and the story tells us that they were so glad that they had seen with their eyes the risen Lord. But not every disciple saw. There was one disciple that did not see Jesus. His name is Thomas, verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Who knows where he was? All we know is that he was not with them, and therefore he did not see Jesus. So the disciples, excited about what they saw, the fact that they saw the risen Lord, they tell him. They can't help but share the news. Listen, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. We have seen the risen Lord. And expecting Thomas to get really excited and to get maybe have a heightened sense of anticipation. What we see is something of the contrary. We see that Thomas, upon hearing these words, says, basically, good for you. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you have seen the Lord. But I haven't. And unless I see with my eyes, what you have seen. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Thomas vows that he will never believe that they saw Jesus. He will never believe that Jesus is alive unless he sees it with his own eyes. Such words of skepticism. Such words of a demanding nature. Creating another condition. I must see it for it to be real. For me to trust in it. For me to believe it. For me to believe this word from you. I must see it with my own eyes. He doesn't believe because of what he does not see. But I also think that he doesn't believe because of what he saw days and hours before. You know what he saw? And it's probably the images that are playing over in his mind time and time again. The replaying of every swing of the arm with the whip that went into Jesus' back. Every swing of the arm that took the hammer or the mallet and drove each nail into the wrist of his Lord and his teacher. Every time he tried to breathe and could not and began to suffocate. He heard every word. He saw every act. He saw with his own eyes the horrific and brutal death of an undeserved man, Jesus. And so he saw that. That was real for sure. He doesn't know what the disciples are talking about in reference to seeing him now alive and risen from the dead. He can't make any sense of that because of what he saw in the images that were so real and are etched in his memory forever. Such personal words. Eyewitness account. Unless I see those marks in his hands, then I'll know he's alive. Then I'll know that it's him. And so Thomas vows to never believe before he sees. And I think what he does is something that we all can identify with as humans. He unveils uh, for us what is at the uh, center of every human heart, a desire to see before we believe in something like this. Correct me if I'm wrong. We can identify with Thomas's words, can't we? We want to see it before we believe it. After all, the last 500 years have been built on the scientific revolution. After all, Francis Bacon brought us empirical uh, evidence, observable facts. If you're really going to place your faith and trust in something, if you're going to consider it to be true, you are going to prove it with observable results. You're going to be able to quantify it. And through the Enlightenment and through the scientific revolution, we indeed have become a society that places its faith, hope, and trust in the things that we see. And it's not just societal, is it? It's built into the main frame of who we are, even as children. This will be the 12th Easter that I've shared the Easter story with my children. Almost 12 years that we have been trying to teach our children what we believe about Christ, who he is, and what he's done. And all three of them, at least one time, have on one occasion come to us and said, very specifically, Daddy, 
how can I believe in Jesus when I have never seen him? And I wonder if that's you today. I wonder if you are craving sight to really give yourself to the reality that Jesus is alive, for you to really believe it with all your heart. Jesus, you are demanding, you are craving him to just personally show up physically in your life in such a way to prompt belief. If you're going to give yourself to it, you're going to have to see it. Just like a child, just like a scientist, you crave sight before belief. Inside each one of us, a desire to see before we believe. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows what Thomas is wrestling with. Look at what the passage says. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. What an amazing encounter with Jesus, Thomas has. Jesus, in this moment, reveals his sovereign seeing over all things. And I love this because the answer and the way in which Jesus approaches Thomas, in this moment of skepticism, shows that, it, that while Thomas was consumed with needing to see, Jesus saw his need. And I wonder if some of you here today are sitting there and you're, you're stuck in that skepticism. I need to see, but maybe it's in this moment that you see that Jesus sees your need. That really that's the thing that's important. That's the thing that's required is that Jesus sees your need. Jesus knows and sees every single obstacle that stands between you and him and you trusting in his name. Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Look at his answer. It's verbatim. It's the same thing that Thomas has said. Jesus knows what Thomas wants. Jesus hears Thomas's voice. And Jesus comes to Thomas in a way that shows that I see what you want. I see your skepticism. And I want to come to you in a personal encounter to dispel all doubt in you. There's absolutely no reason, Thomas, for you to not believe that I am alive. See it with your own eyes. See me. Touch me. Interact with me. Experience the glory of my risen state. And there's nothing like a personal encounter with the risen Jesus to dispel all doubt. And so in this moment, in this intimate personal moment where Jesus appears again, he looks directly into the eyes of Thomas, I presume, and he tells him, Stop disbelieving. Do not disbelieve any longer, but believe. Calling on him not to just nod his head and say, okay, I believe it's true. But to give himself comprehensively to the totality that Jesus is 
alive. He has conquered death. He has defeated sin. Satan no longer has a hold on Thomas. Give yourself fully to devotion to Jesus. Stop disbelieving and believe. And I wonder today if Jesus in this moment is speaking directly to you through this passage. Stop this. Don't disbelieve any longer. See who I am. Trust in me. Believe in me. And you see that this very moment between Thomas and Jesus is that personal encounter that will dispel all of Thomas's doubt. That he is no longer doubting Thomas. That he is trusting Thomas. Look at what he says. He says, my Lord and my God. He sees Jesus for who he is. He is nothing less than God himself. One of the clearest confessions of the identity of Jesus and Thomas's faith in it. If you're wondering who Jesus is today as the risen one, he is nothing less than Lord of all. He is nothing less than the one true God. That's who Jesus is. Notice that all these people would say that Jesus never taught that he was God. He revealed himself as God. And he did not rebuke his disciple when he was confessed to be God. Jesus is God. Believe in him that he is alive. Trust in him for life. That's what Christ is doing in this passage today with us. And yet you say, well, that's not fair. Thomas got his personal encounter, right? You say, Mike, great for Thomas. Great for the 12. But where's my personal encounter? When will Jesus show up in my house and prove himself to me? Thomas may have seen the Lord, but I have never seen the Lord. Jesus, again, in the midst of you being consumed with your need to see, understand that Jesus sees your need. He sees you. He comes to you in this moment on this Sunday. And I understand that crave to see. I've had it. In my moments of skepticism, in my questions, I've had it. But I want to tell you right now, I've never seen Jesus with my own eyes. Never seen him. And yet I believe in Jesus that he is Lord and God with all my heart. And I know there are many people in this room here today that the same thing. They have never seen Jesus, but they believe in Jesus as Lord and God with all of their hearts. And here's why. Because sight is not a necessary condition for belief. You may think you need to see Jesus to believe in him, but that is a false assumption. You do not need to see Jesus to believe in him. The truth is, we believe in things every single day that we do not see. We see the evidence of it. We see the fruit of it. 
but we don't see the root of it, if that makes any sense. I was talking with Jeremy a little bit yesterday. In many ways, this is what Jeremy does for a living. He's a, he's a prosecutor, and he's trying to convince a jury of someone's guilt uh, of a crime, and he can't take the jury back to the exact moment and say, see with your own eyes. But even though he can't see it with his own eyes, even though he can't take the jury back there and see it all over again, that doesn't mean that it never happened. That doesn't mean that it's not true. That doesn't mean that there is not evidence that points to that it happened. He talks about how he talks to the jury and he explains to them. He says, listen, you may go to bed at night and you may look outside and see green grass and then you wake up uh, 7 to 12 hours later, depending on how long you sleep, and you may see a white blanket of powdery stuff outside and you will conclude that it snowed. Did you see it snow? No. But evidence is clear that it snowed. You may find yourself riding on the subway in New York City, underground. And when you went into the subway, you may have gone in and the sun may have been shining. And you've just said to yourself, man, it's a beautiful day. It is sunny and gorgeous outside. And as you take your subway train to your destination, people are getting in, people are getting out. And people all of a sudden start coming in and their briefcases are wet and their papers soaked and there's drips and drops of water all over their shoulders, on their coats. And you conclude that clearly it's what? Raining outside. You're not seeing that it's raining, are you? But evidence would tell you that it has rained. You see, we believe in things all the time that we're not actively seeing, but evidence points to it, okay? Just because you don't see the risen Jesus doesn't mean that you can't believe for good reason in the risen Jesus. You can see evidence of it all over the place. And I would concur and say this, that people sitting in this room and for the last 2,000 years, lives have been transformed are evidence of the reality of the resurrection. That the testimony that is, by the way, direct evidence in all cases, eyewitness recorded testimony that says that Jesus is alive, that those closest to him saw him with their own eyes, and in the way in which it was recorded and written down would have been, man, if they wanted to lie and say something that wasn't true, they would have said it in a completely different way, that there is great evidence to show that Jesus was in fact dead and is now in fact alive, and people saw him with their very eyes. There is evidence all around us that points to it. Seeing is not a necessary condition to believing. You don't need to see Jesus to believe him. And the fact of the matter is this morning, even though all week I was trying so hard, putting pressure, unnecessary pressure on my shoulders to prove the resurrection to you. It hit me late in the week that that's not what we're doing here today. We're not here to prove anything. We are here to proclaim it. We are here to preach that Jesus is alive. We're not here to prove it. We're here to proclaim it. And the reality is this, that myself and you, 
Many of you in this room, that's how you came to faith in Jesus. That's how you placed your trust in him. You said, listen, I've heard the reality of the resurrection. I've read it in the book. I've seen the evidence. And now I place my faith, hope, and trust in its truth. That it is not seeing that is the condition that's necessary to believe, but it is hearing. For Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So today, as you come to Renovation Church, unless Jesus decides in his sovereign will to come physically again right here, right now, you are not going to see the risen Jesus today, but you will hear of the risen Jesus today. Jesus is alive. You ask the question, who can I trust? In what can I believe? Believe that Jesus is alive. Trust in Jesus for life today. You may stand before Jesus someday. And you may say, I've never seen him. Never saw you, Lord. That's why I never believed. But on the basis of your presence here this morning, you can never stand before Jesus one day and claim to have never heard. Jesus is alive. Believe in him. Trust in him for life. Let's understand this. Faith is not in any way, shape, or form Some trump card that we play when we have no evidence. That's what the skeptics and the critics would say. Yeah, when you don't have any evidence for me and you can't prove it, you just play that faith card. Well, I know it's true just because I believe it and that's it. That's not what faith is at all. Some of you may have heard of Ricky Gervais. He's a UK guy, British accent guy, kind of entertainer. He's in some of the Verizon commercials actually now. Three or four years ago, we wrote a letter why he used to be a Christian, and now he's an atheist. And basically, the whole letter that he wrote was was an argument that it's all bogus, that we have science, we have observable, uh, testable things that we can do to, to know and to trust in those things we can believe in, and how this whole concept of a risen Jesus is all just bogus. There's no evidence for it. Shortly after writing this post, Lee Strobel came out with a post of his own. And he began to share his story. How 30 years ago, his wife came to know Jesus. And he freaked out a little bit. And he was a little confused. He said, how could she believe in this? And so using his journalistic research methodology... He approached the resurrection as a historical event, and he set out to disprove it. He read all the books, the books for it, the books against it. He went through all the ways of of proving and applying and, and reading through historical accounts, and then he came to this unexpected conclusion that all the evidence points to its truth. And he talked about how 30 years later, he is a Christian, He's celebrating the fact that he trusts in God. He says, that's why I'm now celebrating my 30th Easter as a Christian, not because of wishful thinking, not because of the fear of death, 
or the need for a psychological crutch, but because of the facts. Lee Strobel. See, our faith is based on hearing, but our faith in the reality of the resurrection is no blind faith, a lame trump card when we have no evidence. It's based on the facts. It's based on the evidence. So hear the reality of the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Believe in him. Trust in him for eternal life. After all, that's why John wrote this book, isn't it? That's why this story is penned on these pages. These witnesses, reliable, credible, consistent witnesses for generation upon generation have written down what they saw and heard so that we might believe and be encouraged so that we might have life. Hearing is the condition for faith, and faith, faith is the condition for life. You must believe in order to truly live. And that's what this is all about. That's what Christ's death and his resurrection has all done for us. It has secured for us something that we could have never gotten on our own. Salvation from sin, salvation from death, and salvation to walk in newness of life. If you want to live, believe. Believe in Jesus. For blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Right? It was not that Jesus is saying that what Thomas saw was not a blessing. Believe me, it was a unique blessing for the disciples to see the risen Lord. But he's saying, there's also a unique blessing for us who believe even though we don't see, who trust in Jesus for life even though he's never shown up in our living room, who trust on the sole basis of his finished work, his death and resurrection. Let me say one last thing. If you're here today and you're still skeptical and you're still wondering, you're still scratching your head, know this, that to continue to put another condition on Jesus is to add something to what he has already accomplished for us. You see, his death and his resurrection are sufficient enough for us to trust in Him. He has done everything that is necessary for you to place your faith, your hope, and your allegiance in Jesus Christ. He doesn't need to do anything more. Believe in Him. Trust in Him for life on the basis of His work as revealed in His Word. The song that came to my mind as I was thinking about this passage, was, I know not why, God's wondrous grace. And I want to just quickly read that for you as we close. How do you know that you know? I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love 
redeemed me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me did he impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know whom I have believe it. Do you? I trust that today was that personal encounter with Jesus through the preached word and that you hear his voice today. Don't disbelieve. Believe. Today, for the first time or for the 50th, believe that Jesus is alive. You can believe that. Trust in Jesus for life. You can trust in him. Let's pray. Oh God, we read these words and we understand. We identify quickly and easily with your servant Thomas. We can't imagine seeing what he saw and believing without seeing. And yet today we give you praise for you have done all that is necessary for us to believe in you. You've revealed yourself to us. You have accomplished the work that you set out to do. Yes, you died. But by the power of the Spirit and on the basis of your righteousness and holiness, death could not hold you in the grave. And you rose from the dead. And today, together, we believe that you are alive. And we trust in you as the source and the giver of eternal life. Give us joy in this, Lord. Help us to stand upon this rock in a society that is skeptical. Lord, may we be a people who live in certainty. Not because we see, but because we hear. And because we know whom we have believed. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will indeed come again. And all God's people said, Amen.